Hello, welcome to the Plus Future podcast with me, James Nepal Singh. Join me as I coach Peter Lyon, the motor journalist who introduced the world to Japan's drifting scene before we even knew what drifting was. Let's get right in. Peter, welcome to the Plus Future podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what bump in the road would you like to talk about today, Peter? Well, that's a very good question. There's several bumps in the road. My main one, I suppose, is the book I've been wanting to write for nearly 20 years, I suppose. Interestingly, it's got nothing to do with cars. Now, I've been writing about cars and car culture for 35 years now, based from Tokyo. But um, what I want to write about is nothing to do with cars. It's about Africa. I went to Africa back in 96. So what's that, 20, 26 years ago. And I was actually the best man at a friend's wedding. And that's just part of the story. But I, the people I met there, the, the things I saw on the savannah, the animals, the relationships of the people, the people, the way people live their lives, the economy, the culture. There was a big story there for me. And I've got this wonderful story in my brain, lo- looking back at Kenya's history, its people, the tribes that lived there, the all the wonderful things that they do there to, when they get married, they have all sorts of ceremonies and rituals and all those sort of things. And uh, I have this wonderful story in my, parked somewhere in here. I've got the whole story ready to go. I just can't find the motivation to get pen to paper. I've written the first chapter. I've got come up with a title for the book, but I just can't seem to get myself, you know, raring to go. I can't seem to sort of get the, the motivation to, to get up every morning and write for three hours, which is what you need to do to write a book. I've done it once before, well, a couple of times before, but that was in Japanese, and I'd been commissioned to write those two books, so I um, managed to get get those done. But this time, it's it's difficult for, to find the motivation. That's one thing. Another thing is the way the car industry is changing so rapidly, and keeping up with the changes is a real, real challenge. It might be better for me to liken what's happening in the publishing industry as to what's happening in the car industry, in the same way that. Gasoline-powered cars are reluctantly giving way to electric cars. Print media, like car magazines, for example, are giving way to online car sites and YouTube channels. And for us old fogies, to keep up with that is a real challenge because for 25, 27 years, I'd written stories in magazines, you know, like Auto Car and Top Gear and Car and Driver and those sort of things. But now... They're sort of internalizing, they're getting their, their people to write all the stories. Freelancers like me are, are either being let go or having to do other things. Like more than half of my colleagues in Japan now have YouTube channels, and I'm being pressured to do a YouTube channel as well. So these are just a couple of things. But my main bump in the road is the book. I really, I know that this book would be a wonderful book to write. It would appeal to all sorts of people around the world. I think it would give hope to a lot of women, for example, because it's about a Kenyan woman. It's based on a true story. It's her life. It's her family and and her desires and loves and losses and all the things that happened to her in her life. And and, she had a couple of big tragedies and big successes and all sorts of things. And and I was, you know, best man at her wedding. And uh, I really would love to write this book. And I've just got to find the motivation. Thanks, Peter. So you mentioned two problems there. The first is procrastination over a book that you've been trying to write for 20 years. Yeah. 
and the purpose of that is to pay homage to your friend where you were best man at her wedding. Yeah. So the story's in your head, you've written one chapter, but you haven't got the motivation to wake up and do three hours of writing a day. You've done it twice before, and you mentioned that there was a commission there. Yeah, there was pressure. When you have pressure to write something in six months, you have to force yourself. It's basically forcing yourself to do something, yeah. I mean, I do love what I do. I, I do enjoy writing, but maybe I feel a little, I don't know, what's, what would be the word? Fear? Scared to get up and do this every morning? To Whether I could do it? Can I actually write this book? I know I can. That's my bump. So one bump is the fear. And you also mentioned something aside from that in your industry, how the world is changing, cars are going to electric and print culture is going to online culture where things are internalized and there's pressure for you to start a YouTube channel. So we've got about 50 minutes to talk today. Which problem would you like to talk about? I suppose the book, because that, that's really what, I, really what I want to do. I just have a feeling that if I write this book, then there's a, a new world will open to me. So I will be welcomed into a whole new world that, that I'm not in right now, obviously, but that I, I would feel very comfortable in because it would be a world. I, you know, I studied anthropology at, at university as well as politics, but I really enjoyed anthropology. And a lot of this book would be focusing on anthropology, on the history of the people and the culture of the people of, of Kenya and around, around that area. On the savannah, we watched a lion mating for half a day, basically. And this lion was able to mate several times an hour. And then after two hours, the male would get up, leave one female, and then walk half a mile to another female who was waiting you know, on the, another part of the savannah. And then they'd do the same thing for another hour. It's, it was just amazing to watch that, that animals could live like this. And that's just a big part of the story for me. I would talk about the, the Savannah for a long time and then talk about her, her relationship with her family and her husband and the, her baby and uh, then her trials and tribulations and her tragedy and then her great success where she found this wonderful grain. Have you heard of amaranth? Amaranth is a, a grain that the Incas used a thousand years ago. It's like a wheat a kind of wheat or a crop that has lots of minerals and lots of iron in it, and it's very healthy. It's a very healthy crop. And she basically started marketing this and became very successful in Kenya. And that would be part of the ending of the story. I suppose partly why I've been procrastinating for such a long time is because I didn't know the ending of my story. I know the beginning and I know the meat and bones of the story, but I was not able to find an ending for the story until... I heard about her success with the amaranth product and that she made this wonderful bread and sort of like a, a pita bread type thing that they can make over there. And she sold it to companies, so supermarkets, and made a very successful life for her and, and her child because they ended up divorcing, by the way, the couple. But this is just part of it. I mean, her parents and his parents, they both knew the President Moy of Kenya, who was basically a dictator back in the 70s and 80s and through to the early 90s. They both knew President Moy once came to her house because her father used to make flags and uniforms for the military. The president was indebted to her father, and she remembers the day that the president came to her house. And that's just part of the story. And then, and then of course, her father fought with the Mau Maus against the British. Part of the story would be looking at the history of Kenya and how the British 
play a, a big role in Kenya's history and how Kenya finally sought independence from the British. And the way the British changed the minds of the Kenyan people as well as a big, brought religion into Kenya and, and the way that religion changed the way that people saw the, the land and the animals. And that's another big part of the story for me. So there's a, it's, a, it's sort of a history book. It's a, it's a novel. It's about her life. It's culture. It's the way people interact. It's the animals. It's the savannah. It's a whole sort of big mixture of, of things that I need to put together to make this book. After I do the book, I would love to do a lecture, a lecture, you know, tour, talk about these things that, that appear in the book. And uh, I did speak to one agent more than 15 years ago, and she, she said that this, she'd love to make this a book movie deal. So that's uh, something that's sort of sitting in the back of my mind as well. You know, so I suppose the, the fear that I, w I may not be successful if I write this, you know, because I, I really want this to, to be successful, and I'm sure it will be because there's so many wonderful aspects of this. So we came back up to the top of this mountain, looking down over the savannah in the evening, and we could see this storm coming across the savannah, and all of a sudden this, the brightest rainbow I'd ever seen uh, came across just sort of went right across the, the savannah. And then about 15 seconds later, a second rainbow. So we're looking at these the two brightest rainbows ever seen coming across this savannah towards us. There's so many little things like that in the story that are just amazing. Like when we were looking at the, as I mentioned, the lions, the lions meeting, uh, it was very quiet. You could hear a few animals in the, in the distance, like hyenas, for example. And then all, all of a sudden, we, the ground started to vibrate. You know, I'm living in Japan. I know what an earthquake feels like. And I could feel this slight vibration. And I said, what, what is that to the driver? And the driver said, don't look now. Don't turn around. Don't look now. But there's a herd of elephants walking towards us. And he said, all the movements you make when you're on the savannah, you have to move in slow motion and make no noise because you have to blend in with the background. You can't disturb the animals in any way and especially with elephants you can't make any sharp movements so i slowly looked around and sure enough maybe 70 80 meters away there was this huge herd of elephants about 12 or 13 of them walking towards us and the lions were there three or four lions were there just lying down the lions and elephants looked at each other as elephants slowly walked past no movement the elephants just slowly walked past the lions didn't move at all Elephants just walked off into the distance and disappeared. And so many little things like that. If anyone ever gets the chance, please go to Africa. Africa can be dangerous. So I'd recommend safer countries like Kenya, like South Africa, for example, Tanzania. But it'll change your life. It'll change your life. It really will. Like we were in the land cruiser going down onto the savannah in the morning before sunrise. And you go down and you can't really see anything. It's still very just before the sun comes up so it's very very dull the light is very dull and you can't really see much but you can hear things and you can hear the the rustle of the the animals eating in the morning like the zebra and the gazelle and the bok for example and they're all there eating and you can hear them it's almost like going back in time to when man was not around because there's no hint of man anywhere it's just the savannah and the animals and the sky. And air is so fresh, the freshest air I'd ever breathed. And 
within about five minutes, all of the people in the Land Cruiser, we were all crying. We were all bawling our eyes out for about two, two minutes. We all bawled our eyes out, and then we stopped just like that. And we looked at each other and said, wow, I feel so much, so refreshed, and so almost like my spirit has been cleansed. That's what happens when you go to a place like Africa. Africa obviously had a profound effect on you. You called it a spiritual cleanser. And you're coming at this from an anthropological background, focusing on many of the animals and being close to nature, the fresh air. So there's motivation there in your head. What would you like to leave our conversation today with that you didn't have before? I think I need to channel that into motivation to get up and write this book. I'd like to channel this passion and awe that I have for the things I saw, the things I experienced in Africa to writing this book. And that's what I'd like to, to end up with. Now, on the day of the wedding, it's just so, so poetic because you had this couple getting married at the giraffe center in Nairobi, Kenya. And so we had all these giraffes in the background with all the photos. And we had the whole group of the whole family there, you know, the friends and relatives there. And I only found out later that in that one 24-hour period, we had a wedding. The bride's cousin, her water broke at the wedding, so she had a baby that day. And on the night before, the videographer who had been shooting her hen's party was hit by a car and died. So in the space of 24 hours, we had a birth, a wedding, and a death. And I thought that's just poetic for the cycle of life in Africa. You mentioned before there was pressure for you to write a book. You don't have that pressure now. What options do you have available to channel that inner vibe, that motivation, where you can get in touch with all these emotional experiences that you had? Mm, this is getting down to the nitty gritty now. <laughs> it's basically finding the impetus, the, the motivation. I think part of what I should do, another thing I've needed to do is to get fit. You know, through COVID, we all, I think we all have been a bit lazy and put on a bit of weight, making excuses that it's COVID's fault. I want to get up in the morning and go for a, a walk or a run, do some gym exercises, get, get fit, lose, you know, five or seven kilograms, get fit. And then I think come back and feel refreshed. The mind is working after an hour's walk in the morning. And uh, just sit down and write. That's what I need to do. So it's a, it's a matter of getting up early because I do enjoy the morning. Get up and uh, just do what I need to do. And realize this is difficult to say, and I don't really like saying it to my colleagues in the car industry, but the car industry is suffering. Well, the car media industry is suffering radically. A lot of my colleagues, as I said, are not able to write in the magazines they used to write for. They're losing their jobs, they're losing their pay, and they're having to do other things. I mean, you know, one has become a taxi driver. As I said, many have started their YouTube channels, but not every not everyone will have a successful YouTube channel. So that's another thing. But I just have to focus, and I think it's a, it's a matter of getting up in the morning, get the body moving. When you get, get your body moving with a walk and some exercises, you, your mind starts moving as well, and uh, that's what I have to do. It's the second time you've mentioned the nature of your car industries, where your colleagues are suffering. To what extent is the impetus to write the book related to that as a means of you pivoting and trying to get a, another means of income? It's a very big part of it. 
another reason that I, I haven't mentioned, I suppose, is that I've, with a couple of colleagues, I started a new website that requires quite a lot of work. I need to write at least one story per day, every day for this website, a car website. That's a, a challenge. I think each day you only have, there are only so many hours in the day that, that you can do things. And, you know, when I write three stories a day, I'm basically drained because normally one of those stories will be in Japanese because I write in both languages. So I'm writing two stories in English and one in Japanese. And you have to use sort of different brain cells to write write in different languages. And it's a matter of approaching the work fresh, I think. As I said, I'm getting up in the morning, approaching it fresh. But my industry is, is suffering uh, very bad and very badly, I, sh- I should say. Some are finding it difficult to make ends meet, having to lean on relatives and friends and try and get help that way and try and reestablish themselves as in other industries even, you know, writing about lifestyle or writing about food, these sort of things. Interestingly, there's always going to be publications out there that need stories about lifestyle and food and wine, for example, whereas cars, cars are changing so rapidly that everything's becoming electric now. You've you say to your editors, I've got a, a story about a new Nissan Z, for example, you know, the new Nissan uh, 400 horsepower Z, which is a great car. And they sort of, eh, maybe, maybe not. And you, you say, oh, I've got a story about a new Hyundai Ioniq 5. And they say, oh, that sounds good. Let's do that one. It's electric. It's new. It's fresh. It's, it's won many design awards. It's got a lot of traction in the car industry right now. A lot of people are interested in these sort of things. From my point of view, the electric car will eventually take over, but it's still basically in its infancy, I think, because even though I drove more electric cars this year than I have in my whole life, uh, I think I drove about 20 different electric cars this year. That's how many came out. But there's still huge issues with the electric car industry in terms of infrastructure, charging, range anxiety, cost. These cars are still quite expensive, relatively, when you compare them to gasoline-powered cars or hybrid-powered cars. It's also a motivation thing with the car industry because I know electric cars are coming, but electric cars, unless they're a car like a Tesla Model 3 or a Audi e-tron RS or a Porsche Taycan, these are electric cars, but they are thrilling electric cars. They are fun to drive. They look good. They're fast. They corner brilliantly. You know, if you enjoy driving these these cars, even though they're not gasoline powered, you enjoy driving them. But a normal basic electric car is just like a iPhone with four wheels. That's all it really is. It's a home appliance. So it doesn't have that spark. It doesn't light your fire, so to speak. So the interest in the car industry is slowly disappearing for enthusiasts. And that is something that I think is in part destroying the media industry, the car media industry. I was actually going to invite you to park the book for a second because this seems quite fundamental to what you do. And the pattern I'm noticing is, correct me if I'm wrong, the motivation for the book isn't there because you haven't got the reward of finances there. And finances are a priority because you're in an industry where things are getting tight. So with your permission, would you mind if we just explore the car industry a bit more and what your options are? Yeah, okay. We'll see how we go there, yeah. We'll come back to the book. I'll explain why I've done that at the end of the session. So where things are tightening up, you mentioned you've got a new website. What other 
potential sources of income can you get that w- would have dried up otherwise? What I'm doing now, the new website, it's writing for a few other publications that I, I am writing for. I've just done a story for another publication in Japan and another foreign publication. But it's also, um, I think, talking about the industry. Given that I can speak English and Japanese, I can give lectures to different groups of people about what's happening in the car industry. Um, not just the car industry, but gaming, the games industry as well. Like Gran Turismo is a very popular game, and I've been working with the creator of that game for 25 years. They've just celebrated their 25th anniversary. I can do some commentary for the game, for their game series. You know, they do all sorts of games every year, uh, different series. And I've done some commentary for those races, lecture tours, lecture series about the car industry, about the gaming industry, even about travel, travel with with cars, with food, with wine. And this is in YouTube channel. And I've got several different ideas for YouTube channels as well. Plus another idea for a TV show focusing on travel, food, and cars, which are all sort of interconnected. And when you put them all together, cars by themselves don't really appeal to many producers, for an example, like NHK producers. But if you put food, travel, and cars together, you have something. And that's what I'm looking at doing. We're recording this right at the end of December. Have you got a notepad and pen to hand? Yep. When you look at 2023, 12 months, how would you split that year up to try these new income streams? I'd like to base it on the book. That would be like a pillar. Every morning for a couple of hours, I'd write some pages, maybe I don't know, five, six, seven pages every morning. Then I would write a story for my website. Then I'd like to try and do several hours for a YouTube channel. Plus, at the end of that, maybe some work for my current TV show with uh, NHK. That would require writing a script and appearing in the show and talking with a producer about what we're going to do in the show, what cars we should talk about, what culture, car culture we should talk about, we should feature. So it'd be a bit, yeah, a bit for my own YouTube channel, a bit for the book, a bit for the website, and promoting myself to do more lectures. How are you going to promote yourself to do more lectures? I've actually approached several car makers who are very interested in hearing what I have to say about their product from a global perspective. I've got a lot of writing jobs in Japan looking at the Japanese industry from a global perspective and relating the Japanese industry to other car industries around the world. Germany, UK, Italy, France, US, for example, Sweden, who uh, make some really good cars right now. Basically, car makers, tire makers, Bridgestone and Continental and Dunlop and Yokohama, they all have a big presence around the world. And I think they'd love to hear From what I've heard, at least, I've spoken to several different car manufacturers and they like the idea of of someone coming in and sitting down. I actually did a a lecture several years ago at Mazda. I had um, 500 designers and 500 engineers, different sessions, a morning session, afternoon session. And I put together a lecture series with a couple of other of my colleagues and three high-ranking Mazda officials, a vice president, head of design, head of engineering. And we just sat up on the stage and talked about what cars Mazda is making and how they're perceived around the world and what they could do to make them better. I think that's what car companies want to hear every every now and then is a honest opinion about what is happening in their industry and why 
their cars are selling or why their cars are not selling. So your pivot is to formalize what you've done occasionally already. You're almost starting a consultancy business because you've got exposure to the whole market, which some manufacturers might not have. So you've got information at your fingertips, which they need to know. So that's marketable to them. What other things could you do that you've not thought about so far? That I've not thought about so far? Well, I mean, a lot of it's got to do with writing, writing stories, writing books, writing websites, lecturing, TV show. I've got some other ideas for other websites as well. Nothing to do with cars, nothing to do with games, nothing to do with food. It's to do with different aspects of Japan that I think people from around the world would find fascinating, but nobody's really talked about them yet. May sound strange, but the world of ghosts, occult, coming to Japan back in the late 80s, growing up in Australia, I had never, never, ever spoken with my friends or relatives about ghosts or about the occult or about the other side. But here in Japan, people talk about it all the time. In summer, they have special TV shows about it. This may sound strange, but the more I, I get into this, the more I talk about it, because I've been here for well, over 35 years and I've heard a lot of stories. I could basically write a book about that on its own, but I think doing a YouTube channel is better because you can communicate a little better, I think, and use animation to talk about these things. But when my mother-in-law passed away on Christmas Day two years ago, it was very early in the morning, about 2 a.m. in the morning, and being in the middle of COVID, the hospital wanted wanted her out of the hospital as quickly as possible. So we got the undertaker to come along and took her away. Before that, we had been requested to go home to her place and find a dress that she could be dressed in. So it was all very quick. We had to do everything so quickly. So we quickly raced home. First thing we found was a, a pink dress with a pink ribbon on it. Took it back to the hospital. They dressed her in that. And they took her away. And we had the, the funeral a couple of days later. But what, what I'm getting at is the following morning at about 11 a.m., She'd passed, what, 12 hours before. At 11 a.m. the following morning in a retirement home, about 20 miles away, a helper that knew her very well and had been helping her for three or four years saw her in the corridor of this retirement home. She'd come to wave goodbye, and she was wearing the pink dress with a pink ribbon. Nobody else knew no one in the world apart from my wife and I knew that she was wearing a pink, and the guy that dressed her, because that, that's his job, knew that she was wearing a pink ribbon with a pink dress. And th these things happen all the time, and I've heard you know, another dozen or so stories about these sort of things. You know, it's up to you whether you believe it or not, but the facts speak for themselves. You mentioned a powerful true life ghost story that's very personal to you there. Out of coaching mode, you know, I'm an artist. I'm from Trinidad in origin. I've grown up in that kind of culture as well. So yeah, folklore, ghosts, it's, yeah, it's part of the culture. So for me, it's nothing surprising, but I can imagine you being Australian, where people don't really talk about these things coming to Japan. It's, it's quite shocking. It is, it is, yes. I've had things that have happened to me as well. I have a medium friend in Australia. I was uh, in, a, in a dangerous place in Geneva. Geneva, I was actually attacked once in a morning. Someone tried to steal my wallet and he came, came out with me with a knife in Geneva. And this is several years ago. And luckily, two guys came out of a hotel right next door just as he was trying to get my wallet away from me. 
and they scared him away. So I was lucky, but I had a huge amount of fear. I was very, very scared at the time. The fear that I felt, my friend halfway around the world, the medium, felt my fear. And she called me and said, are you okay? I felt that something's happened to you. And only in 20 or 30 minutes before, I had felt this incredible fear from this this attack. This woman, this lady that I knew from many years ago, she could see it. She could feel what I was feeling. There are things that we don't really understand, but they do exist. And I think they're fascinating. And I think people would like to hear about these sort of things. Peter, you're a great storyteller. The way you're telling these stories to me now, you've got me very, very entertained. Just getting oh, out of coaching mate now, just bringing that out there. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. So your YouTube channel, from what you're saying, if you're doing what you're doing now, it will be very, very successful. I'm saying that not within the coaching space. I'm just saying that as my personal opinion. Okay. What's your timing for doing that and setting it up next year? I've written probably more than 20 different shows, 20 different stories that have happened to me or friends of mine. I'd like to get it started at least by spring next year, put some ideas together, get some scripts written. Because of course, as as you know, you need a script to get things done. So need to sit down and write these scripts. And then I've actually done one or two just for uh, like a trial reason. And I showed it to a couple of friends and they thought it was a great idea. It, it worked well. But I also have another medium friend in Australia who just says, Mm, what you're saying is wonderful. Sounds great, but just be careful. Be careful because the occult can be a challenging place to deal with sometimes. And how did you feel when they said that? She said, "You go ahead and do it, but just make sure you pay respect to what you're doing. Be respectful of, of the people you're talking to, the ideas you're, you're talking about, the episodes you're featuring stories you're featuring so yeah just know what you're doing and be respectful okay so assuming you are respectful and you know what you're doing how do you feel about writing that down on your piece of paper that you're going to commit to doing that by spring next year okay yep that's the the ghost side of things how about the consultancy side what's your timing looking at your monthly schedule for next year when are you going to implement the things and what are you going to implement uh i think i should revisit the lecture proposals I've made to four car manufacturers and one tire manufacturer. And they they initially showed interest. Then we got the next wave of COVID and several Japanese companies are a little bit paranoid when it comes to COVID. If COVID settles down a bit, then I think I can get started by spring again, because it takes it'll take two or three months to set these things up, to set lectures up anyway. But I'd like to do, you know, I'd like to do one a month. I think there's enough clients out there that would entertain one lecture per month. So I can see you writing that down now as well as a commitment. So assuming there are no COVID issues, you'd like to do one a month and you're going to reach out to the car manufacturers and the tire manufacturers as well. Yep. And um, another thing is, is to collaborate with colleagues. I can collaborate with designer colleagues. I've got some high-ranking designer friends. You just sit down with them, and like we're doing now, you just feed them questions and ideas and comparisons, and they come back with things that you never, you never thought of. You couldn't imagine. I've done it several times before with my interviews for, for magazines or whatever, and 
you know, it's just a matter of like you're, like you're doing now, you just feed the, the right questions in some way, almost like a, a naughty question every, every now and then as something that stimulates them in a certain way. And, uh, and you get a, a response that you never dreamed of, but it's a, it's a great response. And it really takes, can take the story in a whole new way and take the interview, the lecture in a whole new way. Because there's so much that we can talk about, really. I mean, I've talked about cars and Africa and ghosts and all sorts of things. So, I mean, one thing I, I really would like to say is I, I'm really thankful to Japan for offering me this lifestyle, offering me these chances to write different stories, to be in a TV show, to you know give lectures, and to think about doing these new things that, as we're talking about now, you know, the YouTube channel, the lecture series next year as well. So I think you do need to know where the work is coming from and be thankful and take it from there. Have we explored all of the other options then, do you think, for the alternative income streams? Okay. One, there's one more. <laughs> Given the car industry, I'd like to, I've looked at doing this and I'm just putting together, a, I actually in, instruct as well. I've done some driver in, instruction, teaching people how to drive properly, that sort of thing. And also... Um, importing cars from Australia because there's a, a whole lot of great cars in, in Australia. Italian cars, British cars, French cars that Japanese would like to, to own. I've got a colleague in, in Australia who has access to all of these cars and I've got a couple of colleagues in Tokyo who know how to find customers. So sort of putting a consultancy together, putting it all together and importing cars. And I'd like to in the same way as I'd like to do one lecture a month, I'd like to import one car a month. When will you start doing that? I've spoken to my colleague about it. He says we could start doing it, you know, maybe as early as February. He'd mentioned spring, so, so spring. So maybe February we could, if we can put a, a deal together, we can get the right car and find the right customer. Because Perth, Western Australia, it's like if you look at Australia and compare it to America, Perth is basically where Los Angeles is. So the climate in Perth is very similar to Los Angeles. It's, it's a very warm, very dry climate. So the cars tend to last a lot longer than in other places like the UK, for example. They don't rust as much. People look after the cars. So you know, there's some good quality cars in Australia, in Perth, that uh, I think we could bring over and, and sell them here. Car importing as well is another thing I'd like to do. So car importing is another string to your bow. Anything else on that list that we can add? That's about the, the limit at the moment, I think. Writing, lectures, YouTube channels and car importing, I think, is, is about where we are right now. And of course, the book. I mean, the book is a big part of everything. As I like to, And I'd eventually like to start a foundation when my book is successful and when we do well with the, the car website. I'd like to start a foundation for kids. Because um, I was lucky when I was at university, I uh, was given access, not access, but I won a couple of scholarships when I was at university. And I'd love to give back. I'd love to create a foundation where I could create a scholarship for a couple of kids, teenagers or high, uh, university first year students to travel, come to Japan, learn a bit about the culture and language and people. And maybe they would want to work in some way in a trading company and diplomacy, you know, whatever. But I would like to give back what I was given many, many years ago. So that's giving back, going back to the Africa theme on the book, which is a great segue to where we're going to go now. Which African contemporary authors have you read? This is a book I 
really like. I dreamed Cookie Goldman. I dreamed of Africa. That's one book that uh, I need to focus on and get stimulation and motivation from this because, you know, I dream of Africa quite a lot as well. So uh, Cookie Goldman is one. And I think I have another one up there. Corinne Hoffman, The White Maasai. It's about a white lady that married Maasai warrior and had a kid and her life with the Maasai. And uh, yeah, so the two authors that I've, I enjoy and I need to, to read more, obviously, for, if I'm going to write this book. But uh, Corinne Hoffman and Cookie Goldman. Considering the current political landscape in terms of how people view other cultures, especially places like Africa, to what extent is it challenging for a white guy to give their interpretation of Africa based on one trip? It's a story about a lady, and it's her story. Once I've written the story, I'm going to get her, obviously, her feedback. And I want her to basically edit the story and make sure everything's right. It's a visitor who came in for three weeks and who's been in love with the country ever since and their way of life. And I have a lot of stories to tell because I've some stories that happened when I was there and historical stories that happened long, a lot, even before I was born to stories that will, you know, continue to go on. So I think I have the right knowledge and the right history and the right background to write this story and get with, with her help because obviously nothing couldn't do it without her help. And I'm in touch with her quite often regularly. Before I finish the book, I would like to go back one more time and just uh, you know confirm some things. On the point that your medium friend mentioned in Australia about just being careful what you're doing and be very respectful of the culture, how are you going to create the same sense of respect for the culture and be aware of issues of cultural appropriation in terms of you writing this book? I think in a way it, it needs to be written by an outsider because there are so many different aspects to this. One aspect is the role that England had, the British had in, in Kenya. And for her to write about that would be, would be a, quite difficult, I think. But from an outsider looking at what the British did and didn't do in Kenya, that's just part of the story, but what they did and what they didn't do is uh, something that I, I could write about. Plus my anthropological background, looking at her family and her history and the culture, I think I have a, a, a good background there to put that story together. Plus it's a storytelling. You have to be a bit of a storyteller to put these things together. And, and I think I've got the right, what it takes to put this, this book together. As I keep saying, it's a matter of uh, you know, motivation. I think I see where you, what you're getting at there. It's, is it right for me to write this book? And I think it is because I was there. I have a love for this country and understanding for it, of it. I need to get this down on paper and, and express what happened to her. And she's really looking forward to it, actually. I mean, she's been looking forward to it for a long time. So um, you know, I really have to honor her and, and get this book written. Part of the proceeds would go to building a school for kids in Kenya. Going back to your point about collaborators that you mentioned in terms of going with designers for your lecture series, to what extent could you get collaborators for this book to help you with your process? In the car world? No, just purely looking at your book now, in the same way you thought about getting collaborators in to help you buzz some ideas off for your lecture series. How could you do that for your writing process? 
I suppose, get input from them as in how they would approach it, what they would include, what areas they would focus on. Sometimes you can get some inspiration in those ways. Like I'm, I often look at, read other journalists' stories about cars and about car culture to see how, what they think and see how they approach their work and their opinions. And quite often I'm, I'm exactly the same. My ideas are mirror what a lot of the other guys think, and sometimes I don't. But it's always good to get a different view every now and then to, to help give a, a fuller picture to what's going on. So you're saying you're asking your design friends to help you write this Africa book to get their ideas on what they should go into? Uh, I don't know about design friends, but I could ask people that have traveled a lot and that have been to Africa and other anthropologists who have an insight into you know, where people came from and why people do the things they do. I don't really think I can mix my one side with the other side. I, can't, I don't think I can mix the car industry in any way with the book of Africa. Who could you contact in Africa who, who knows about Africa? Well, I've got a friend in South Africa who I met in Kenya. She can give some insight. I can talk with my friend in Kenya, Nairobi, who has a big family. I think she's got 13 brothers and sisters, and I could speak to some of them and get their insight. There's one of the, the guys who's been to Kenya many times, and he has some insights into Kenya as well. So, yeah, it's a few people I can talk to. You've got collaborators who you can reach out to, and they can give you some ideas. Going back to the fear of writing, it sounds like there's some perfectionism issues going on there where you really want to get this right. And what you said is that's probably caused the procrastination over the 20 years. How can you convince me now that you are actually going to write this? Like you said, you want to write for a few hours a day, but you haven't done so for the last 20 years. So what's going to change? It's a matter of, of uh, age. I've got to a certain age and I have to keep fit for my wife's betterment, for her and also for the family and friends. And I need to keep fit for my work. As you get older, you just need to knuckle down and focus on you need to do to, to stay fit and keep working. And I want to, I, I really do enjoy the mornings and I really do want to get up. And uh, it's a matter of getting to bed earlier. So what I need to do, you just made me decide that okay, what I need to do is get my daily car story done early before the evening so that I don't have to worry about it at night. Get that done. And then I can go to bed before midnight and then get up, get up at you know six o'clock and go for a walk and then get the mind going and be in front of a computer at seven, right for a couple of hours. It's just a matter of knuckling down and, and knowing that you've got to do it. And who can you call upon to keep you accountable to these commitments? Okay. I've got, well, my wife, my wife, for example, she, she's uh, the one that, that I'd need to get on, on my side well, she is on my side of course but and two other friends i suppose uh two other mates who and i'll let them know what's happening and get them to push me every now and then so yeah i think a wife and and two close friends who i almost look as look at as being my my younger brothers over here because i living over here for so long you know you're away from australia in a way you have to sort of find friends that you can trust and and they can trust you and and they'll almost become like family members and uh there's two or two or three guys that i look at as almost being like a younger brother 
Great. So the commitment that you've made is to write your automotive stories before you go to bed. And that clears up the morning for your fitness regime. And from seven o'clock, you're going to write for a couple of hours. And the people who are going to hold you to account are your wife and your two close friends who are almost like your brothers in Japan. So to circle back where we started from, you had inertia for 20 years to write a book about something you're very passionate about because you wanted to get it right. We just went through the commitments you've made there to solve that issue. And then the second point that we discussed was how you're going to pivot when the automotive media industry is taking a turn for the worse. And you mentioned a consultancy business, an import business, YouTube channel on ghosts, other YouTube channels relating to the automotive industry. If you've kind of talked about ghosts, one YouTube channel I should do before ghosts is a food channel. There's a guy out there who lives in Japan. I don't know, he must be a wealthy guy because he, he just gets his iPhone, sets it up, goes into a, an expensive teppanyaki place where they grill expensive Japanese wagyu, Japanese beef, and he just sits there and films it. And he gets 2 million, 3 million views because people love to watch someone cooking expensive beef and eating it with wonderful bits of garlic and sauce. And, and I was just thinking, oh, if he can do that, I, I can do it. <laughs> Question, is that profitable? If you can get 2 million hits, yes. You can earn a couple of thousand dollars a month from that. Fantastic. So potential revenue streams coming up your way with all these ideas. Well, you know, ghosts and, and food. Food is one that yeah, needs, to, needs to be done, I think, because Japan has a, a very extensive food culture. I mean, I'm a bit biased because I've been here for so long, but I believe Japan has the best. and I. Would love to challenge anyone that doesn't believe what I'm saying, but I reckon Japan has the best food culture in the world. Why are there more Michelin restaurants in Japan than anywhere else? Why did Japan, a Japanese, come up with the fifth taste sense? Uh huh. You know, you've got sour, sweet, salty, and what is it? Sour, sweet, salty, bitter, right? They're the four main ones. And then you've got umami. This Japanese guy came up with this umami which is, comes from like a, a broth or mushrooms have this umami. About 80, 85 years ago, a Japanese guy worked out that there was such, such a thing as umami. And Japanese, in foreign cooking programs, they use the word umami now. There are more mushroom variations than anywhere else on the planet here. On New York menus, you can find steak with uh, you know, shimeji mushrooms. The food culture here is absolutely amazing. You can get some of the best Italian, French, Thai, Indian, Chinese food anywhere in the world. And of course, the Japanese and the sushi is great too. It's the best in the world here. Why do restaurants change over so quickly here? Because the competition is so intense. If you don't serve excellent food, you won't survive. You've got to serve absolutely wonderful food at a reasonable price or your restaurant won't survive. That's why there are so many great restaurants out there in Japan. So food is another one. How can you convince me that you've got so many ideas that you probably won't know which one to execute and then there's going to be inertia like your book? I think you've got to have many ideas for, you know, for, for one or two to, to get traction. But um, probably the, the food one would be the first one to go for. Okay. So we're doing food and then ghosts. 
Excellent. And then going back to the book, so you've got your writing commitment there, but you also mentioned the research you need to do and the collaborators you need to reach out to as well. You answered when I questioned you about issues or potential cultural appropriation. You mentioned that it, you're coming from this from an outsider perspective because you can touch on things that others possibly can't do. That are a bit sensitive, I think. Yeah. There was, a, I think, an American lady who wrote a book Oh, it must be more than 20 years ago. She wrote a book about Australian Aborigines. It's called Mutant Message Down Under by Marlo Morgan. And it was actually quite controversial back in the day. We met her at a lecture series when she came over. There are some Aboriginals that don't believe she, she actually did what she did. But um, it was a bestseller. She traveled with a tribe of Aborigines for several months. And they took her to some amazing places and showed her about their way of life. And uh, it's a great, a great book. I think mine, hopefully mine would be a bit thicker than that. She's only got 176 pages. Mine would be at least 300 to 330, I think. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we sign off? No, I think I've spoken about more than I thought I would. Thank you for extracting all of those important points that I need to really focus on. Thanks for joining the Plus Future podcast, Peter. Not at all. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that. Peter is obviously very talented and has lots of strings to his bow, which means he can pivot easily when things get tough. I'll let you know when his book comes out. Feel free to comment, like, share, subscribe on the usual socials. Until next time, 